Hey y'all, welcome to this here 8th episode of the Future Barn Podcast. This week I'm doing something way different. I'm going to, I'm, the episode is going to consist solely of a long poem of mine that I've been working on for five years now. Um, when this, this phrase Future Barn first rang in my head, I was thinking of my grandpa's barn that's down the road on 1500 North two miles north of Elwood, um, and it's this barn that's been, that I believe was built in the early 20th century, and has, has been there my whole life, it was a place I played around when I was a kid, and now it's on the pot, it's on the plot of land that my grandpa was born on, and it's now just exists there alone, the house now taken down is just, uh, and so when I look out from my yard where I live now, and uh, I can see that barn still down the way, and but even from when I was living in Austin, I could see that barn in my mind. It was that kind of beacon that I was heading back toward when I knew when I first felt the pang of wanting to come back to Elwood, and that knew this was the place where I wanted to be, and and thinking about that phrase "future barn" took me in a lot of places. It took me into my identity. As a hick, it took me to both sides of my family. This, my mother's side here uh, in central Indiana, my father's side in the hill, hills of North Carolina. It took me into my place as a poet, um, as a speaker, um, and it took me in and out of relationships. My first marriage, now my uh, recently dissolved second marriage, my mental illness, um, and in my different interests in various kinds of writing, stand-up comedy, poetry, lectures, all that. And so the poem, as you'll notice, weaves its way in and out of genres of writing, weaves uh, it weaves its way in and out of spots of time, uh, connects different relationships and touches on different relationships, and uh, misremembers a lot of things, um, works really hard to both remember well and to acknowledge that we can't remember well. Um, it's a poem I'm very proud of. It's, it's 50 minutes long. It's about 35 printed pages. I'll put the PDF of it up on my website, yourbuddytgob.com. Um, but kind of my birthday is this week. My birthday is on September 25th, and every year I like to give away some of my poems. I released a new little collection of poems, and this this long poem has been itching to get out into the world for a while now, and it, it kind of gave me the impetus to finish it up. So so here it is, uh, Future Barn. So this is the Future Barn podcast at the Future Barn blog, and this is the Future Barn poem, um, a hefty poem it is. And just so I don't want to explain the poem too much, and I don't want to explain the idea of future barn i'm trying to discover the idea of future barn by living it but i just see future barn as this kind of the way how do we take small town rural america into the future as a progressive um concept as a um as a as a thoughtful um extension of ourselves and growth of ourselves into the future and so um, this poem is trying to enact that as well as capture that. Um, and I hope it does that. I hope this give, I hope you enjoy listening to it. 
And if you want to read it or look at it, it will be on my website, like I said. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting Future Barn and all of its iterations. Um, and thank you to my Grandpa Tyner, my Grandma Tyner, um, my Grandma and Grandpa Gobbles as well. Uh, and then all my various uncles on both sides who show up in various uh, distorted versions of themselves in this poem. A lot of the facts are real. A lot of the moments are misremembered. A lot of uh, the, the so-called facts are misconstrued. A lot of the memories are intact. So it goes in and out like my memory does, like my mind does. Um, and I hope that this poem honors that well. Uh, yeah, enjoy. Future Barn. You might prefer to bow your head and fling these words towards whatever God, orb, or entity you worship. Be my guest, which is a good reminder to say thank you for being my guest. Anyhow, me personally, I prefer to keep these thoughts, these feelings, down here between us like an excited goat, kicking up its own shit between fence posts. This, my latest attempt to send a signal, a red light flashing high up a windmill, hoping the planes and the birds soar elsewhere. Despite my rambling, in spite of my babbling, I do not wish to keep you. I want to release you towards one another, to mingle forward together into the future, barking in the present and fueled by the past. First, let me share a minor explanation. If you stand in this yard right between the driveway and the leftover trees, the electric company threatens to unplug. You look past a trio of houses, a random horse, if the corn does not stand still, and we can see it maybe, Future Barn, the affectionate name I grafted onto my grandfather's barn, old white rickety thing he keeps threatening to tear down, to dig a hole and push it in. But I beg no, and not just because Future Barn, it is such a solid two-word combo, a duet between temporality and hickish leaning, but also because what its presence means. First, an artifact of a past beyond my own. The barn squats on the plot Grandpa awoke on. The barn surrounded by field. The last patch of family farmland. Up and down the same road. A pile of memories held against myself to myself. Till now, here they come flooding. Once my dad dragged me along to help my uncle. He was moving and I brought my dog, Sugar. And she ended up shitting in the house after everything else had done been hauled away. And I did not tell this to anyone till right now. It is the night after my wife left, so I figure a pass might be granted. Okay, but what about for killing that bird? Bryce and I in the field with pellet guns, and I killed this bird. Which kind of bird? I did not yet have brain enough to know. I peeled back its chest and flickered there a neon heart. Or so says the little voice that narrates my memories. Also, I confess, the envelopes never to till now. Grandpa and I turning dust down the driveway on his tractor, and I holding the mail freshly plucked from the mailbox, and a couple plopped from my tiny paws. 
and folded into the dust below the tires. I never told anyone about the pile of fear, my tiny melon mustard and worry, what little I knew of bills, repos, pen pals, the lottery. The worries coagulating like soup. And despite its bubbling, no, I did not come clean. Why am I telling you now? Standing on the diving board, waiting to jump into the chlorinated water of divorce. I am remembering how Grandpa collects obituaries of men the same name as him, Fred Tyner. A morbid notion, I thought at first. But later realized what a way to keep going. To continue living, to hit something solid about one's position as a human being. Being flushed out this moment and back into the next. It thuds like finding a fossil when you're out digging a well. The poem already reveals rather how I juggle my high hopes for each and every with a brain that flicks on and off, a broken porch light, a bad chandelier, the person I find myself becoming, the tingling hands and the blurred vision, the voices I am forced to wrangle each morning. John Ashbery, he said, it's getting out of hand. And I must agree as my head throbs, hung over not from booze, but these spells punctuated with memory loss, tagging along these latest years, leaving at times only the present to contend with. Well, that and my habit of breaking to reveal multiple realities nested inside each other. Like in a poem, two sentences, the first about water and the preceding of Frisbee, chopped and spliced back together to reveal into it i've transferred i hold no clear signpost i spy no scorching spotlight i offer no resonant rev revelations i call it instead a cruel the personal and the poetic i look not at the height of the snow the public and the private i am watching the snow blow the lost and the retrieved as it drifts against the barn as the barn releases itself from its foundation a millimeter grandmother in the picture window a boy he leaps and lands from the top of a dirt mound safely on bones of rubber a skull of milk hello my name is idiot wisdom hello my name is i might enter the field hello my name is wild error trevor borden he sings where are we going when will we get there and to that urgency i must add who the fuck am i stumbling into this sector of my life it rings in my ears as time passes and memories molt. Effects separate, shift, and settle. My poems skip around amongst the blur and seek to see both how it was created and how it might end for the variety of us. This here league of selves. Nicole Walker, she says, a creation myth is pretty lonely if you only write it about yourself. Same probably true of the apocalyptic tale. So I must head back to where this began. To navigate dirt as the minutes fill me with dread. The tick keeps shuffling and dirt keeps time. Hello, this artifact is called painting all blue. Hello, this artifact is called wolves inside a fence. Hello, this artifact is called flags of countries I've never visited. I wonder what manners folks might find to communicate if not for mouse. Some guy on some podcast, he says... The early words came out like coos of birds or barks of dogs. Or, this is me, the sound of a small rock sliding down the face of a bigger rock, 
till they bent and melted to become a word, and the word attached to a thought, an object, a bruise on the side of a banana, for instance. And now I listen to a 47-minute deep dive into the fragility of nature's most popular yellow fruit. Thank goodness, the human mouth is very distinctive against a dark cavern or an empty sky. Easy to spot and even easier to hear. There are even more important things than he said and she said. Mary Rufel, she said this. And I know a specific population would disagree. And elsewhere, she nicknamed tulips, urinals for the sun. A quote with no purpose in this poem, a dip to disrupt except to say, here's something I get a kick out of. Everything is mighty complicated, quite nuanced, built of echoes and thuds of the moment. Like the poem I once wrote, I'm not a potato. It goes a little something like this. America, I'm not your potato. A potato has 48 chromosomes, and I've forgotten how many I have. A potato can be cooked more ways than I have chromosomes, probably. My ancestors domesticated the potato, and I'm mostly not domesticated. I leave my peels everywhere, sorry. Sweet potatoes are well loved around the world, and folks in Switzerland don't know who the fuck I am. I'm not a potato. A shaman, he said, you put a raw potato on that, meaning on a broken bone, meaning to promote healing, and the only thing I promote is the contents of this poem. My grandfather, he said, rub potato juice on your face to cure acne. It got worse. And what's the deal with potatoes having juice anyway? I'm not a potato. I'm an American. Thomas Jefferson, he introduced the French fry to the U.S. in 1801. But where I come from, we call them by their Christian name, Freedom Fries. Buck fifty a plate at Friendly's Restaurant. Agriculturalists in Europe, they found potatoes easy to handle. Except when hot, of course. Something I guess potatoes and I have in common. Potatoes and I, we are both not mentioned in the Bible. And true, I always believed my mother. She said, son, you are what you eat. And the average American eats 137.9 pounds of potatoes each year. But gracious, I'm not convinced. No, I'm not a potato. Potatoes first became popular once Marie Antoinette, she wore a crown of potato blossoms at a parade. And I have been popular since a German shepherd. He bit a big chunk of my elbow off. And I did not cry one bit. People somewhere else fought a war over potatoes. And as far as I know, no one's ever fought a war over me. Potatoes are grown in all 50 states. And I have only grown as a human in Texas and Indiana. Also, I taste awful. A physician in Ireland, he said, Potatoes are powerful aphrodisiacs. And that is the last thing I need. End of poem. And yet this hee-hawing, it continues on, clamors on, as much yapping happens. To categorize boxing, to find people and their types. The collection of what tingles throughout the chain, across geographies, ancestries, communities, coalitions. I see my reflection in a link in the chain of names tossed around to describe, or often, I guess, to demean folks like me. Small town, camo-clad, twangy types. Redneck, hillbilly, hick, white trash. Goodness gracious. Let us leave that last one here to turn over in the dust. But otherwise, my eyes, my ears, even my hands are wide open to consider what the hell each label means. 
My uncle, let us stop, start with his umbrella. It is hard to deny he was a hillbilly. His patch of dirt backdrop by a line of trees. The sun shining a halo of clouds over his trailer. The plywood shed adorned like hillbilly heaven. Johnny Paycheck, the bleats of a goat. The continued crush of cans. The crooked horseshoe stakes. The chickens roosting in the bushes beneath the satellite dish dangling from the gutter. This is the choir witnessing through sound. The chickens laid eggs in the front seat. If one forgot to roll the window upright. And then here is the baptismal pool. Someone loaned tobacco and he set out to dig a pond. But it ended a puddle. A hole filled with hose water. A few bluegill he caught tossed in. And me, eight years old, I dove right in. That mud pit, that slop of red clay staining my white underwear. That murk and that muck caking my pale skin. My uncle... Done for the day asleep in the black seat, both the man and the machine out of gas, out of purpose. I'm categorizing by intent and by concern for, or is it against, aesthetics. Unconcerned with context and accrual, gripping time is this mechanism, to tie your rope around and sling forward. As here, I speak of a type of person particular to survival, my uncle. He figured up the small stack to dish out monthly to keep Four light bulbs flickering to keep his gut pumped with beer. The beast, that is what he calls it, though one might know it by its Christian name, Milwaukee's best. To keep that wood stove of his heart siphoning cigarette smoke for the final 25 to 40 years. See also those ones hit television fortune and thus hooted and hollered their way to Beverly Hills. And see that relative of yours. He quit receiving invites because... He quit answering invites, and because everyone else, quite honestly, they were a bit nervous around him anyhow. Let us remain focused on folks cornered off by rural propensity till the itch might overtake them, which reminds me of my father. A man scratched by birth alongside six siblings tucked in their shack at the end of the dirt road. A single street lamp illuminating the outline, his daddy cursing his beautiful cabinets Monday through Friday, his daddy cursing his beautiful children all weekend, his mama chain-smoking in the kitchen, nibbling away on her ketchup sandwich, but here, let me get on to my second batch. My father, as I have known him these 31 years of my existence, he is a redneck. A certain spell of success alchemizes the hillbilly from the holler and into a pattern of houses circling a small town, a rural suburb. The concern changes aesthetic once burrowed finally blossoms, so then perhaps the cigarettes go away. The drunken rubbernecking, it simmers down. The spirit to holler re-energizes into babble in backyards. More manicured, more landscaped. My father mows his four-acre plot once a week. And yes, he is shirtless. And yes, Hank blares from the barn. And yes, a Bud Light, a rocking chair await his ass. Like his wallet, his scope, his belly. The redneck shifted concern. Or is it expanded? Beyond survival towards contentment and the presentation of that contentment. See also... Jeff Foxworthy and his persona-clad clan of ramblers. Or see also your rough-around-the-edges buddy, he of the good factory job. He likes his booze and his crude senses. He's happy his wife and his kids sleep in nice beds. The redneck has not shed his roots. 
now tucked inside Walmart jeans, a Carhartt jacket, lifts a finger towards a particular case of the other. My dad points at the moments and he nods. He says, you can't hide it. The woman at Walmart, an unlit cigarette in her mouth and a cart full of Cheetos. He says, you can't hide it. Joe trash talking through a game of cornhole. He says, you can't hide it. Parking lot teens in camo hats, a cheek full of chew. Lying about the buck that got away, the length of the fish. He says, you can't hide it. And I can't hide from mine either. I'm a hick. This here third definition, born of the same pond water and raised on the same beef jerky. But the hick is extended through education and exposure. Okay, we can call it what it is. It is privilege. Survival has hedged its bet on analysis. See also Abraham Smith and Shelley Taylor, editors of the anthology Hick Poetics, accounts and ditties as they say, fast tied to the countryside. The hick extended beyond presentation to the production, cropping a field of hope, mining a mountain of making. To be moved beyond the isolated scrutiny and insecurities of our ancestors, to recloak ourselves in the virtues of nature, of collaboration, of orality. Shivering with a need to nurture this pang in our hearts, future barn, I cling to this title to tighten a worldview within, to expand towards the very difficulty containing us. Our hand-me-down hats and whiskey mustaches, hail on the tim top, dead bird against the window. Abraham Smith and Shelley Taylor, they said, It is our responsibility to speak the language of the holler. And in that last word, yet another H word, we find cropping up again and again. Both that expanded divot where some heavy-ass iceberg halted, often were stuck, our hillbillies, where birthed our rednecks and hicks, and also holler as a bawling, a reclamation of that word through its usage. Within the wilds and within what grows out of those respective spaces, from those of us who know the great American countryside, from our country-knowing mouse, the hick with space tied to the eyes and the hands, and to the mouth, one prone to squawk among the branches and backwoods barks, one with the sideways song to sing as the wrench pings loose the oil pan. See also the pages within it shuffles and deals a bunch of noisy hick poets out of their valleys and mountainsides and through time to us when we listen. I was a 19-year-old nut job with half a scholarship and a free Tuesday night, so I followed whatever kind of human would lead me to a place to not be alone. And guess what? I ended up at my first poetry reading, Maurice Manning. He was rattling something from bucolics. Do you make nothing, boss, but questions? Did you set that fox inside my head? Did you lay that field behind my eyes? And down I fell into hick poetry, this particular region of Babel, mine own holler, a helicopter heading, leading back into the woods, a lineage of things and the sounds they make, trucks, birds, guitars, mouse, the realness of the snare trap. It is not defined by what it is after, bear, rabbit, coyote, human being, but ultimately what it hitches bear, rabbit, coyote, human being. It whips through the world regardless of intent. Anyway, I'm not here to tell you a story. I do not unfurl epiphanies. I grind my gears and crank these levers, oiled slick out in the open. Find here contains some literal yop and sprawl. 
a physicality untapped in certain less desperate heads. It is a convulsion of sorts you see in the body of the hick, reciting these lyrics or playing some checkers. The hick groans, moans, snaps back the head. The hick breaks lines, skips to a king, a splatter across rural impressions. I flip to and bounce right off every jukebox. Meth lab, overgrown lawn, polka dotted with washing machines and treetops. Here to Texas and back with scraps stuck to the verse. I'm some limping oracle flung half crooked and half dead, like the fowl on the chicken express sign, flapping the wings of the mouth to stay alive and off the ground. In times like this, we are wearied and wide, yet wide-eyed. A continuousness explodes, a catalog of just what makes these days both so excruciating, so contagious. So now, I say, may we all get out of this damn place and let out our long cries. Like, look, like I'm begging you, step outside, something is glowing, a forgotten snap of wood, a styrofoam cup, with a gap-toothed boy drawn on it. The ass print in the mud is mine, a cigarette in its final moment of burn, its last roiling to transfer its hope to me. This afterthought twig of oak, this brunette grass, it is a known fact I will be dead one day. Who knows, maybe in your lifetime. So I fling a stone and it skips across the county road. It is a sign of my futurity. To say, I mean business. My beady eyes pointed beyond this stone. If the stone skips only twice, it is hard to agonize over the two hops to compare to contrast. Yes, three is the charm. Like any good clap, relationship, or plate of pizza. Just enough to be heard, clearly loved wholly, to eat till full. Any more and the performer doubts your sincerity. The couch becomes crowded. The belly's burgeoning rebuttals. Look, a faint halo of smoke. And I'm reminded of my first real friend, a pyromani pyromaniac and amazing on a trick bike, Jason. Tiny fissures in the flesh of wood. Spots of time on my shirt. Mustard from the hot dog last Tuesday. Three years ago I began bleeding. My nose or my knuckles, I do not remember. Look, the fire is really starting to fire. In my teens, caddy cornered to the concession stand. Burgers for a buck, a fistful of gum for a quarter. I willingly spread flat on the pavement. My place in the middle, three of us. Five of us, and once there were nine... Jason, he jumped us all except that try of nine when he clipped the in-person's arm. I think it was Becky, though I might misremember, distracted by a ribbon of ash through the barbed wire fence, bouncing like his tire off the concrete. The flame is up here now. The flame is opening towards the field. I hear the slightest sounds from afar, and I remem reminded of the party. Jason, he threw it in a bar some barn some years later. You cannot torch the sincerity out of me, written in blood in the morning on the side of the barn. We all knew I was a weirdo anyhow. Hankering, gross, mystical, nude. Walt Whitman, he said that. And I say it is night now. I have wandered to the creek. The fire has tired itself out with a little help from the cold air. The air so wild it holds me upright. The ripple effects of open burning. Spark, bane, a single droplet of tear into the creek below. The fish so rarely fish, so they wait instead. And I admit I hate buildings, undo handshakes, styrofoam. The authority in a glass of water. How the city clogged my senses, 
the particles like snow fleeing, the condos tectonic plates of drywall, the particles clogged my nose, and the pitiful engine patter clogged my ears, the neon open signs clogged my blue eyes, my skin rubbed raw, my dry mouth bombarded as the enemy's gate. I want to eat this mud where the water meets the grass. Once as a child I ate dirt, but no longer. As an adult I devour what once belonged to the dirt, but now amends its color several valleys away, like my uncle in his tanning bed in North Carolina. I carve this space to fracture, like my old friend the stick. I crave this space to holler, like my old friend the flame. I press my face deep in the mud, where something snaps, something settles. The light, the vapor, the wind, this sound. Not abstraction, but reflection to consider only certain parts of the manual. I'm told poetry, too, had to be discovered, as will the next planet to house us after this one smolders. And then a faint sound riding the wind, otherwise if close startling and overwhelming. But from here, a tea kettle's wail, though swift momentum of buffalo. And then there is a filthy pause, months perhaps, years in fact, interrupted finally by again Mary Rufel. She said, I hated childhood, and I would agree if I remembered much more of it. I only remember that I did not want to go inside. Because I knew if I went inside, I would have to go home. And that would be me, the kid who went home. Also, I had to shit. I had to shit so bad it stuck as my first memory. I could not go inside because my mom sipped the Diet Coke on the couch and she would realize it was time to go home. If only to save her a trip outside to fetch me. I shuffled through the woods, in and out of rusted cars behind fat bushes. I held it till I could no longer hold it let it slip in my underwear and i was still not found by those brothers it whatever the forgotten names of these hosts friends opposition i laid face down flat between a stack of leftover lumber and aluminum canoe spray painted gold west edge of the property why do i remember that detail and why do i include that detail till i stunk so bad i could not live with the smell or maybe it was the feel I was nine years old, still wearing tidy whities I pulled my waistband with my left hand. I snared leaves with the right. I layered the insides of my underwear with what fell from the tallest oak tree in the yard. I could hear them coming through the thicket. The brothers, my mother with her last sips of, of coke, what she saved for the half-mile walk home. I did not wish to head home, so under the goldish canoe I scooted. I was strong enough to lift and roll under before it dropped, but once below, I had to face the fact. This is where someone would find me, too weak to lift from below, banging my first rhythm of filthy panic. Mary Rufel, she continued, I hate adulthood, which is likely how my mother exhaled, peeling the leaf and shit-soaked underwear off my shivering ass. I remember often shivering, even when warm. Mary Rufel, she concluded, I love being alive, which I feel compelled to agree with. A feeling first felt the night I made out with Becky, who would later become my cousin. The same night I saw my uncle's asshole, a picture of it in no scenery, tacked to the end of that slideshow from their first trip together. A cruise to the Caribbean. She and her mom and her sister with my uncle. The sister now run off with a boy named Clyde. All we know is he is 27 years old. 
My parents and my uncle and Becky's mom, they done ran off to find her. Supposedly holed up a few miles around the bend in a trailer. The chubby sheriff who might be distant kin, he said, the trailer is green. The wrinkly lady at the gas station, she said, it is Shirley Brown. Or maybe her name was Shirley Brown. Both sources compared the color to bodily waste. My parents and my uncle and her mom, they left us alone in the woods in a house built on the side of a mountain. We spent half an hour channel surfing, two minutes trading terrible massages that gave way to another half hour of channel surfing. Till finally buoyant, we were on my uncle's bed. The only bed in the house big enough for two bodies, hovering on the surface till we melted, like letting our limbs loose and ceasing floating, joining the fish in the bowl of the body of a lake. My uncle, he'd built the house for himself and his ex-wife, the one with the voice gone scratchy because her previous husband shot her in the neck as he left her for himself to be alone in the woods. We found ourselves in my uncle's bed dry humping and then Becky, she slid her hand down my pants like a steak knife through butter. I came in my boxer shorts immediately. It was the year I switched from those white ones. My friend Dan, he was on the wrestling team. He said... Those are the ones perverts wear, so boxer briefs became my thing. I threw those soggy boxer shorts off the porch, rolling him over him in the air till snagged on a branch and appeared to wave back. How my wife would wave goodbye many years later, saying she was staying with Amber for a few days, but she never did come back. Becky joined me on the porch, margarita mixing a coffee mug, emblazoned with my stupid body and my stupid football uniform. My mom sent it to my uncle after his divorce, after his ex-wife took every coffee cup ever accumulated. I wore no underwear and felt self-conscious, but she could not tell or she knew not to show it. Becky, she said, you want to see it, dude? Want to see a picture of your uncle's asshole? What I should have said was no, but I said yeah, hoping she was mistaken. The tip of a hot dog or chain email gag never sent. Hoping she was being sly to get me once again in a room with no view of my underwear midair. But she was not kidding. She was bored and to pass the next 16 seconds she pointed at the screen. And sure enough, an asshole. And sure enough, I looked. I too was bored. And like people do when bored, I did something. I did anything. I did whatever was in front, like stare at the asshole of my uncle, though I never did verify it belonged to my uncle. It might have been anyone's uncle's asshole. This casualness worked for my uncle. He never had a plan, never a notion of consequence. He did not guess a computer could display such a moment. He built a windmill on the property without acquiring a building permit. As for me, I find it, um, it is amazing I make decisions at all. My attention span spun soon in diversion. I continue to mourn what I believe to be the loss of what I believe the kindest, most personable, most rational president. Should the first requirement to lead this country not be the short list, kind, personal, and rational? I could sketch the terrible core of the character now tweeting from the Oval Office. Instead, I softly stroll through eight years of photos. I often talk too much, expand and fill the void long ago left when nature left, or rather we banished it like an adulterer. We pressed our stamp onto its forehead. I feel the best thing in life, being one of the only creatures as far as the eye can peep, 
me and a bunch of tumbleweeds between here and the mountains where exotic animals are stored. The, the Budweiser folks, they fly up there and shoot them dead. Somewhere slept my wife who hates that lore and my dog whenever we could find her chasing swirls of dust around cacti, the beer cans filled with dust, streaked with the stuff. I remember it was my turn to find the dog, so I tramped off in one random direction in my long john, singing my song she likes called 35 Chickens, careful not to step on a snake. And she was there with her head down some hole. I prayed she comes up with her nose, and then she chased some quail. I transferred the chickens in my song to quails and headed back to my dreams. Flames transformed into solar panels. Hunks of potatoes revealed to be nuggets of gold. I remember in the morning my wife orated a lesson on the Sabbath and the tradition of the Jews. And then I yammered something I remembered. A time I took the rabid dog to death. Maybe why I'm so spooked by flutters and bushes. The rise of moss in the outhouse through the space between my ass and the whole jigsaw above the bucket. I leave the door open. I'm hasty to undust the igniter of my earliest nightmares. The desert gives room for such reflection. A safe place to get stoned and cry alone on the porch. When my wife sleeps in the cabin with the dog coiled around her thigh. The shower curtain around the rod in the outside stall. The latch snapped off the sack of water useless now. I am now truly the only creature here to the mountain. Where is that moan coming from? I look inside myself. A god done broke open a rock to see what she hid there long ago. Is a scorpion crying to get back outside? Which brings me to my next point in this lecture. Advice for my friend James. I'm in no way qualified to give on making contemporary art contemplating the depiction of the decapitation. John the Baptist. A look on his face like waiting for wool to dry. My memory is an eighth full dispenser of orange juice. I puff on a cheap cigar and begin this list of advice, or some would say rules, for being an artist in this kaleidoscopic garden. Potatoes, if you insist to enter one in your contemporary art, it must move across the wall out of reach of the child. What child? Whose child? I do not know, but his name was Connor. Most art will be out of reach, but do not intend to do this, nor should you intend not to do this. Be more like the heron I witnessed today, both passing along majestically and shitting. How impressive something so large and so seamless. Critics, they will lecture on one thing. A true artist must never have a backup plan. This ladder is a ladder nowhere near right, but recognizably crooked. And ladder. I fell off mine and hit my head hard. I see the sound of a tiny door made of water opening. Then I walked through it and I felt a shoulder. It said, look, anyone can be a lifeguard. You just need the right tank top. James, never worry about what you make will do eventually. Because in 1830, a steam locomotive traveled 36 miles per hour. And by 1969, the Apollo 10 spaceship affirmed 24,791 miles per hour. So at this rate, that wobbly stool you whittled it will hold the biggest wow you can imagine. Art heads straight from one head to another. Some artists spend all their time on Twitter. Sad, boring sack of 
pancake powder, painting flowers, terribly realistic. What the hell am I talking about? Let me begin again, perhaps. It is hard to imagine Ann Carson, David Blaine, Barack Obama as children, what they wore and how they behaved. What signs of early miracle revealed, but I bet I would be disappointed. To witness David Blaine picking his nose just as I did and not slyly vanishing it, aggressively wiping it to the underside of the lunchroom table, where he, like I, squatted every day with his boring friends, we one day forgot. Or more honestly, they left us and moved to Utah be to become doctors, to save lives and perhaps, time will tell, cure Alzheimer's, that terrible disease which wipes the mind, the king of all. That disease which gripped the shoulders of your grandmother and shook her mind clean minute to minute. Each turn around the house bringing to mind, as if for the first time, the pie there on the counter sliced the sixth, till finally the pan was empty and she was so very full. It is as the mind yearns to do, to leave only crumbs, and the sadness to think of mine and Carson's, for example, once so empty and then briefly so simple, look a bee, I can count to twelve, the admired truly knows how I feel, till piled snowflakes become the simples. Her whole life became an avalanche of reason and Greek. Hard to imagine Ann Carson flipping through her books, not recognizing the handwriting in the margins, not conjuring the definition of scenarum in the dictionary of her mind, the residue from a fire's ashes, which calls forth Barack Obama next to a non-smoking sign with a cigar in his mouth on the White House lawn. An image, I admit it, I made it up, but also likely I did not. Gray flecks in his hair, a television channel struggling with its signal. Hard to imagine Barack Obama, out of sorts, befuddled, confused. But I did see clearly in a photo, no imagination required, a look never before seen on anyone's face as he shook Donald Trump's hand and prophesied the beginning of a fire. Last night, I dreamed a fire with these three surrounding. David Blaine, he rips a card and throws the pieces into the fire. Ann Carson, she stares deeply into the seams where the orange meets the blue. David Blaine, he pulls the king of hearts from the pit fully intact. Ann Carson, she recites a single sentence so crisp, even the coals cringe. Ann Carson, she says, I am curious about the season of coldness you have there. Barack Obama, his fingers dance in and out of his pockets. To clarify, he too feels what I feel, if only for this brief moment. And yes, I did hear my wife's last demand. No more of these poems, blabbering, hickish, heathen joy. But I failed, I am back with more. The same brackish syntactic yops. For instance, this essay about Jared Leto, acclaimed musician, occasional face on my mother's television, a man committed to the reinstitution of the American buffalo and to the continued consciousness of the American person. Did you know this? Once dwindled down to less than 500 American buffalo, now they graze a couple of tens of thousands. I watched them glide across my mother's television, murmuring with a mouthful of spineless grass. The buffalo, they say, thanks, Jared Leto. My mother, she told myths as I worried in childhood. She said, don't worry, God combs the buffaloes each night in heaven. She said, God straight-handed their strong legs to the buffalo to push those giant heads like torches through mounds of snow. 
I clutched my beloved chicken bone. As other baffling things fell out of her, or out of her television, I cannot remember. I say, inside a pasture one often finds gold. My mother often ran her crimped hands through the yearly gourds like a buffalo head through a snow mound. And when her whispers could not woo my worries, she drove me a town over where a farmer had given up on cattle and had given up on pigs and had given up on ostriches. She drove me a town over to watch his herd of 20 or 30 buffalo keep pace with our vehicle till forced to turn east following the fence which weds them to one another. And my group grip loosened on the chicken bone. She drove me one town, more town over, where a man with one eye, he lost it in a war. What war? He served ice cream. She said, this is a very good price. She said, you can have whatever size you want. I said large. To him, her, God, the chicken bone, Jared Leto, you here now. Though to be honest, I only meant to tell you about when I found out Tristan Czar, he called for the universal installation of the idiot, and I felt for the rare time in this life ahead of the curve out in front of something a smidge ancient, tripping myself into the dirt of mistake, chance, unintentional intersection. The universe does its own number on this mess, some lost to a vortex of wind, some changed due, ele- due to alleged illegible handwriting, some scribblings clear as a puddle of water. My writing, my uncle punctuated with the loss of an actual dear uncle, the spring bisected by a disappearance back to my Hoosier homeland, literally why I'm on this plane right now. The idiot is connoisseur of chance, messy, imperfect maker. The idiot tosses the ski rope to the sky, coasting for a bit, finally losing balance and letting the lake do what it wishes. And in what it wishes, a possibility for a lot of other misses. Mistranslation, misunderstanding, misremembering, mistakes by your your original standards. Emily Dickinson, she said, If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. In the process of knowing the self, it is a similar slice of desire and uncapping. The best utterances and kisses know this. The enlightening trudge at sunup knows this, and the, and the strums on the porch at sundown know this. So what do you see when I take off my hat? Heredity, hickishness, the dull clippers in the closet, but of course us being the, these tumbling selves, it is a temporary peak, an uncertain scratch in the marble, a split second sniff of what really is cooking in the kitchen, and then poof, back into the world, the world filthy and unknowing how third grade students write poems that do not realize they are being written too enthused with the act to worry what makes it a poem a human being scribbling we live nine years 28 years 61 years 89 years and we collect these experiences translated into memory then what joe brainerd unable to slather enough through painting he discovered the easiest model for the maximum memory withdrawal the I remember. But stack written out, it is not full, nod fully at how remembering works, of what a simplicity hides behind its curtains. I dismember, I misremember, I remainder what is left. A quick scrape against the overwhelming, a burst bubble in a flood of suds. Like, what do I really know of my fucking childhood? I misremember my first funeral. I fell asleep in a buttoned up shirt. Ugly with mauve pinstripes, 
I ate meat lover's pizza. I remained her the color of the brawl I glimpsed. The number of ice cubes I sucked down whole. I was nine or post first cavity filling feeling. Yes, I dismember the flavor of popsicle I sucked. Grape or green, what is the peach? The sound of a hand on my hair. Or the door handle of the green camper. It was on fire or the sun was coming up. I awoke, I said, I know somebody is dying. I awoke, I said, somebody I know is dying. Jeep Wrangler exiting my gullet. I misremember which nightgown my mother wore. The teddy bears on the or the hearts. In the wallpaper, it was green, though I remained the number of deer heads displayed at the funeral, each certainly shown on the wall. Surely remember the end of October, a hotel with the pool indoors. I misremember the size of my penis in the pool, who was there, who was laughing, my dad literally fishing my trunks from the deep end, which uncle chomping tobacco the color of his horses. I dismember my uncle literally fishing my trunks from the deep end. Which father chomping tobacco the color of which horse? I misremember the first chicken I killed. I remember the smell of weed in the parking lot. I remain, I remainder I ate chicken legs and puked on Halloween. Which year and which chicken? I misremember how I misremember what season my uncle gave for never shaving. This guy I knew, Sean. He turned mad at me for lying after I told folks at a reading. This next poem, I wrote it in the car on the way here. He was in that car, too, eating a lemon kolache or a sausage biscuit. He said later, you did not write that poem in the car on the way over. I said, I did, and I did not. A response he hated more than my original fudging. You see, I wrote that poem on a porch, and I wrote that poem again in the car, needing it to exist in the narrative of my uncle's death, which uncle and which death, which came first, the uncle or the poem, the poem feeling like it has been blabbing for some eons, humming and coagulating orally like sparks, and eventually it sticks to stick to proof a fire, a comet melts into the side of the space station, and neither would ever be the same, and letters this can sound marvelous, the first striations in the mud and a variety of others since I'm jealous of how visual artists do studies, meaning deliberate reworkings, workings, reworkings, reimaginings of subjects. Francis Bacon, he paints the head of an important person and then smears the face with a cloth. His notion of the nervous system, irrationality and something like chance fucking it is always fun to make light of consciousness, the constant power struggle, the insistent landscape, grotesque in the knowing. One poem, it creeps into the world and reverses my understanding of coconuts. Of coconuts, I am no expert, and neither is the poem or the poet. As the poem merely reenacts sincerity, pathos, breezy, and imbalanced, like how the autumn forever treats the leaves, a bit of dust in my brain. Something I had confirmed four years ago, and when I open my mouth, it is because I need more space to breathe than these lungs originally applied. Yes, I am amped up, and yes, I have committed myself. Locusts ate the field, it was golden, and then it was bare. Tombstones rising, accompanied by an orchestra of snails, the tiniest fiddles of their throats shouting at one another. These language acts are experiences, solidified into that gelatinous thing you might label 
a poem. I miss remembering again the mold for my aunt's jello infested with chunks of fruit dessert. Which aunt and which fruit? Tristan Zara, he said, no more masterpieces. William Carlos Williams, he said, a poem is a machine. Imagine how bewildered first and stoked second the Swiss army they felt the first time holding their knife. I'm digging for the kind of thing a thrift shop receives as a donation and then continues to mark down in price week after week because no one can figure out what it does. It turns on, it revolves, it appears to hold whatever will fit. I am not interested in poems that go boldly into the dirt. I'm more concerned with the dirt itself, how it clumps, it muds, it fractures into the smart, smallest particle, no longer dirt but dust, yet so reintegrated with the rest, the layer where we stand, where we walk around. Existence often is reason enough. When I was a child, my uncle dug a hole in the yard. The dug dirt lived as a mound off to the side, and the pond never became more than a puddle. My cousins and I, we accepted our aggressions and curiosities, climbing instead of plunged. We fought each other for the peak of the mound. We chased each other down. We imagined it a slide when the rain or snow wet it slick, and in our less loving times we made clods of the mound and threw them against each other's developing heads. Palms do vibrate into discovery, and this is different than the organized beauty I'm prescribed. No intentions but hopes. These hopes for segments of my interiority, bright bulbs impart the sensation of things. My uncle, he said, a knife is when you cut with it. An onion is when you dismantle it and cry. The feeling is when you strain and blink goes the edges. My ideal palm is a field littered with dandelions. A struggle between two cousins to sing, loudest from atop the mound. My uncle, he would often dismember the torch art in lieu of napping. He would misremember how many cookies he swallowed that day. As connective tissue, a palm is dubious. As a puzzle piece, a palm rises partially, a cookie thrown into the creek. A mountain of the pl- a mountain of the place where we once grew potatoes. There was more of the field to my uncle than one might first assume. I turn from this particular palm to do some people watching. The inexact chance-based art of sitting and observing folks. Blistering atoms around the self. A child screams his first curse word straight into the mouth of another child a tad smaller. Several security guards chase a single shoplifter through the mall. A man covered in pigeons shakes the pigeons away, only to reveal himself to be yet another pigeon. Kenneth Koch He tells the tale of a student miswriting a swarm of bees, a swan of bees, and I discover it on every lake I do not dive into, the lingering bird. It suggests more trills equal more inclusion, another chance to hear the notes bounce off a relative's hair and become whisked fresh by poetry's own obscurity. And in this particular period of grieving, of course I'm drawn towards this idea, an archive of feelings. Anne Svechevich, she declared it somewhere. But as I look out the window of this plane, I must not. Future barn, it glows, erupts, persists from below.